Amen. Nice, easy passage yet again in the book of Malachi. Come back next week, it'll get easier, or perhaps. Next week, we actually start a new series. I want to show you counter-cultural convictions. We're going to walk through issues that we're all facing, uh, decisions we have to make, beliefs we need to hold in a world that is constantly rubbing up against the beliefs of the Bible and God and Jesus. So we're going to spend a few weeks just looking at some real kind of hot topic issues and what the Bible, what Jesus, what God has to say to us. So make sure you come back next week. It's going to be a great time. In the meantime, you get Malachi and what but my friend just read there this wonderful ending passage to the book of Malachi. I've talked to a lot of people who've really enjoyed this book. It's been, they, they all kind of use the same language, like it's been a smack in the face, or it's been a kick in the butt, or it's been, it's been intense. And we end just the same way. It's still intense. And this ending actually reminds me of one passage I taught. We went through Romans in our old building, and I had to teach out of Romans chapter 2. And it talks about coming judgment day. So I was spending all these weeks leading up to this time I had to preach on one day we're all going to face God and give an account. So I was just steeped in all this. At the same time, I was in the middle of just a hard season of life with medical bills primarily. Our second son costs a lot of money. He still costs a lot of money, but he particularly costs a lot of money to be born. And we were just drowning in all this debt. I was a teacher, not making much, didn't have good insurance. And I was always on the phone with medical people, like just trying to get my head above water. And I'm preparing to teach people about coming Judgment Day. And I remember being on the phone one time with this sweet gal, wherever she was. And I just said, ma'am, one day you're going to die. <laughs> and you're going to face judgment. Are you okay with how I'm being treated right now? She said, uh, sir, I think this conversation's over. <laughs> Why was I there? Because I was in the same spot Israel was in. They're looking out, and they're just looking at life, and they're saying, this doesn't make sense. This isn't fair. A math teacher making $36,000 a year should not have medical bills equal to that. This is not fair. What? God, where are you? And that's where Israel's at. And this whole book of Malachi has been Israel being confronted by God, sometimes for things they're dealing with, sometimes uh, things they're thinking, but all the time God confronts them right, they're at, right where they're at. And here's what Israel is doing. They're faced with the same reality we're all faced with, living in a broken world, and they come to this conclusion. It seems pointless to serve God. I'll just show you, if you have your Bible there, go to verse 14. This is the conclusion. This is the tension point. This is what draws out this conversation between God and Israel. Verse 14 says this. You said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, following him, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, doing his ceremonial stuff? Verse 15. This is the punchline. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Translation, it is pointless to serve God. Concluding statement from the people of God at the end of the Old Testament. And God is now going to address them and talk to them about this tension point. So here's what I want to do. We're going to walk through this passage, and I think there's four looks we need to make as the people of God. I wrote this. We have, must look four directions in this world to fear the Lord in a world that is always dismissing him. So we're going to look out. We're going to look in. We're going to look back. We're going to look forward 
as the people of God to actually cultivate this fear of the Lord in a world that is dismissing him. So let's pray and ask God to meet us right here in this moment. Father, meet us by your word. Have your spirit press upon our hearts where we need to hear you. And by your spirit, give us the power to leave here more fearful of you, more aware of you, more willing to serve you in a world that is neglecting that. God, we love you. Thank you for this book. It's been a wonderful treat to us as a church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, four looks. We're going to walk through and just look. Here's the first look. We need to look out at the world. That's the passage I just read, but I want to read again. Verse 13 says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Pause real quick. It's always good to be reminded of the, the personality of God who's invisible, we don't see him, we don't interact with him face to face like we want to and we will one day. But it says this, God is telling his people, your words have been hard against me. Other translations say stout or harsh, abrasive. God is caring for his people and what he's receiving are words that are harsh. You guys are, it's affecting me. You have been harsh against me. Well, what have they been saying? But you, they, this is their response. It's been through the whole book. How have we spoken against you? And then verse 14, what we just read. It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Translation, it is pointless to serve God. Now, we could be judgy Christians right now and kind of like, ha, these guys, I mean, come on. It's like what we do with Pharisees a lot of time. Like, how did they ever get so off base? Or the best posture is to say, how is this the same here in this room? And if we're honest, if we look out into this world, a lot of times our heart, our mind says, it seems pointless to serve God. Like I lead student ministries. One of the things I see this is with young girls in dating. All of them are struggling with this. You're told to marry a godly Christian man, and there's none of those. <laughs> it's pointless to serve God. So I'm just going to lower my standards and I can get all judgy and use Pastor Ron and Mark and say, I get how you can see that. Like, I really don't. There are no godly, good looking. <laughs> that second part is key, but. Me. Years ago when I have Roman and all these bills are piling up, it's pointless to serve God. Why? I'm doing this job that I think I've been called to do and all the bills are stacked. Like, I just want to go make money. Righteous or unrighteous, I want money and I want to be com comfortable in this life. It's pointless to serve God. At the same time, the lady receiving my phone call, God bless her, just doing her job in Dayton, Ohio, in some calling center, listen to some yahoo who's about to preach, yell at her on the phone. She hangs up, it's pointless to serve God. None of this makes any sense. I just had breakfast with a guy who has yet to have kids. In his 40s, him and his wife probably won't now. 
And he would be the world's greatest dad, hands down. And God is not giving that to them. It's pointless to serve God. Some of you with chronic health. Spouses you're taking care of. Crumbling marriages. Crumbling relationships with your kids. Israel is looking out and saying, it seems like the math isn't adding up for the righteous getting rewarded and the unrighteous being punished. It's just, it's a crapshoot, so it's pointless to serve God. That's the conclusion they've come to. And it's a conclusion, if we're honest, and we open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears for a half a second in this world, we come to similar tensions in our heart to say, it seems that way. If we were to pull up our phones and whatever news we go to, I'm a refined guy, I go to yahoo.com, but I don't know what you all use. The first couple of stories, all the way down through, it's going to be littered with Come on, another person murdered? It's pointless to serve God is the conclusion they've made. And we can see how they got there. Luke Simmons years ago went on a sabbatical. He's our lead pastor. And he was kind of back home in Colorado and Ohio, 10, 12 weeks. Kind of went to church, tried different churches. But he comes back and he had this, this was his big aha of his whole sabbatical. Nothing in this world is reminding us of the transcendent reality of God here with us now. Luke Simmons, godly man, lead pastor, spends 10 weeks traveling around and he comes back and feels the pressure that this world puts on us to forget and neglect God. How much more do us just average Joes Need help to believe God in the midst of a world where it seems pointless to serve him. That's the tension we're in. That's what Israel's saying. And that's why God's saying, you're harsh. I've, I've done so much for you. Well, if the people of God are looking out and they say it's pointless, what's the next look we need to make to actually be able to fear the Lord and serve him? That's our next point. To actually look in to the church. Where do I get that from? You have your Bibles? Verse 16, I love this verse. It's just a subtle little twist right after this issue. Verse 16 says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Isn't that beautiful? It's pointless to serve God. Why? Who's saying that? A majority of Israel, some of them, who knows? But then it says this, Those who feared the Lord turned and spoke with one another. If we are going to fear God in this world, we need to turn in to the church and meet and speak to one another. And I just love, I love this. This is the church right here. Before the church was the church, this is God describing what the church is. And I love all the language in here. But there's two questions that pop up out of this section. This first one is, who are the people of God? The New Testament word is ekklesia. It's a Greek word that means called out people. Who are the called out people here? I just want to go through and just show you, show you the language. Verse 16. Those who feared the Lord. Go to the end of that. Verse. And those who esteemed his name. End of verse 16. And then verse 18, once more you shall see the distinction between righteous and wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. 
Who are the people of God? The perfect ones? The ones with all the answers? The ones who don't screw up? The ones? No, they're the ones who fear the Lord, esteem his name, and serve him. Period. And the book of Malachi is saying, that's what you want to cultivate. In this world where it's easy to dismiss him, the fearers of God come together. Now that word fear of the Lord is an interesting word because if you're like me, you come, back, come from some sort of church background that, that fear of the Lord can get wonky real quick. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Luke had a, or Seth had a great illustration a couple weeks ago. I had a good one. I was driving my oldest son to a football game and not the name drop, but we're kind of a big deal. Uh, I'm not, but we have a kid whose dad is a high up in the Cardinals. And I didn't know this until somebody pointed it out. And Elijah and I are driving to the game. He's like, Dad, you ever get nervous that Brady's dad is watching you? And I'm like, it's interesting you ask me that because I am very aware of Brady's dad. All the other schmo dads. <laughs> Brady's dad, I'm aware. There's a fear. There's an awareness of his presence his thoughts, his words on me as a coach, coaching his kid. Those who fear the Lord are those who live this life with an awareness that God is at work here. That he's been at work in the Old Testament. He was at work in the New Testament. He brought Jesus. Jesus lived, died, rose again, sent his spirit, and God is still alive and active. And the fearers of God live with an awareness that God is alive and active right here, right now, in this moment, in this church, for us, for the good of the nations. Amen? Amen. They get together. They be the church. What do they do? I love just looking at, they get together. Like, Sometimes we overcomplicate, like, oh, what do I need to do to be super, super godly? Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. You gather with the gathering of God's people. You come together and you gather. Uh, look what it says next. The Lord paid attention to them and a book of remembrance, verse 16, was written before them. They write a book. We are a people of the book. My favorite pastor in Texas would always say in a southern twang, we are a people of the book. We are a book people. God has acted in history and he has wrote it down for us to learn and study and understand him. And we still in this day are supposed to be a people of the book, a people that remember and write down all that God has done. They get together and they remind themselves of all that God has done. Go to verse 17. This is my favorite language in all the Bible to describe God's people. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves them. What else do the people of God do as they get together around a book? They remind each other of their identity, which is what? We are God's treasured possession. Like some of you, that's all you need to leave this morning with. We are his treasured possession. Why do we need a reminder of that? Because as we look out, nothing in this world is telling us we are his treasured possession. All my young girls figure out dating, they're looking around and they're being told lots of things 
None of which says you are my treasured possession. We get prayer requests every week. Pastors, elders, prayer team prays for them. None of those prayers are ever, God, give me more tears, more pain, more baggage, more brokenness. But they're all, God, I am filled with tears. I have so much pain. I have so much baggage. God, help me. We are all busted, broken, sad, tearful. And we get together to remind ourselves, despite all that, we are his treasured possession. That is what the people of God do. And then we remind ourselves that God defines reality. Here's, this is something I wrote as I was studying. I read through this a million times, and it did not send out until recently. Where is it? Go to verse, back to verse 16. What else do the people of God get to know? Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Here's what I love. The Lord paid attention and heard them. In the midst of all this, we are the people of God who get to know God right now, presently in this moment, and he pays attention, and he hears us, and he's active. That is beautiful. And it also, if we just look horizontally, we never come to that conclusion on our own. We need to be reminded of that. I remember the first like huge trial in my life financially. You're going to laugh, but my old 1993 Isuzu, I called her Susie, broke down. And I had this giant insurmountable bill that no human being should ever have to pay, $250. (laughs) And I'm just a kid, and I'm like, it's pointless to serve God. My stupid friends, cars work great. Me, the righteous one, $250 bill. And my dad, who is a fearer of the Lord, said, Son, how do you expect God to take care of our mechanics family? And I said, Other people's cars? (laughs) His point being, God is active right now. He is present right now. It's not the way you would have done it, and that's why you're not God. But God is active He is working, not only now, but in the future. Their big complaint is nothing makes sense. The math is not adding up. And he says, I am active right now. And one day, which we'll get to, I am going to fix this. And you will see that I've been active through every moment of human history. We are the church. We turn in and we remind ourselves of this transcendent God who is alive and active and on our behalf, working for all good in our life. If you just look out, you're stuck with a very depressing answer to life. But if you come into the church, you start to get some answers. Once you come in, though, there's two benchmarks God has always given his people. Look back, look forward. I want to look now. Here's the third point. We're always told to look back to his instruction. Where do I see that? So chapter 4 is the ending of the book of Malachi, the ending of the Old Testament, the ending of God's word for hundreds of years to his people. And he tells us to remember two things now. Look two directions. Go ahead to verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says this to his people. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He says, as the people gather, don't forget to look back. 
What's interesting is God says remember all the time. If you go through the Old Testament, even the New Testament, he's always saying, remember, 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 remember. But in the Old Testament, this is the only time he's not saying, remember what I did. Remember my acts. Remember my greatness. Remember my power. Remember my saving works. He's saying, remember, and this is just fascinating, to summarize the Old Testament, to end it, remember the law of my servant Moses. And then he uses four words that all kind of get to that. The statutes and rules that I commanded at Horeb for all of Israel. What's he saying? He's saying, remember how to live by looking back on how I've acted on your behalf in history. I met with you at Horeb. That's another word for Sinai. Where I gave you my law and I started to form you as my people. Remember that I am shaping you. I am forming you. Do not forget that. Remember that. He could have said, remember, and pointed to more actions. I think he's kind of said, I've done that. This whole Old Testament is everything I've done. Now, you as my people, listen, turn your ears to me. Remember that I am shaping you. And I've given you my law. And I want you to be shaped by it. Deuteronomy says this. This is what he's pointing back to. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children to do so. People of God, look back and remember. All that he did, yes, but also he is shaping you. He has given you his law. And now we as the New Testament people, we get to look back and we don't have to look to a mountain where a man's holding rules. We get to look back to a cross where a man is nailed because of our sin, because we didn't live up to that law. And he died in our place. And he was placed in a real grave. And we ro he rose again and he said, I am not done with you. I'm actually going to give you more help. I will send you my spirit. And at Pentecost, the spirit came on the church. He says, now you have the power to do all you need to do in this world. Look back to that moment, church. That's what God says. Always. We get to look back to how he's acted, but not just for the sake of gazing upon him, to be shaped by him. Look back, people. Look back. We don't just look back, though. We end here. We look forward to a day. And this is how chapter four ends, talking about I thought of a lot of ways. Being a preacher, you sometimes spend a lot of time on a little word here and there. Look forward to, I had lots of words there, but I want to call it the end. Because it, it brings our focus to a point in time that is coming. We're looking back at Moses. We're looking back at the cross. We're looking back at all that God wants us to be. We're also looking forward to what? The end. Here's my question just right now in this moment. What are you most looking forward to? Because some of you come and you're, you haven't thought about any of this in a long time. Some of you have never thought about that, and that's great. Some of you have no church background. This is the first time you've seen somebody open a Bible. That's great, too. We're all, but the reality is we're all looking forward to something. We're a hope-filled people. We look forward. I had a mentor early on tell me, always have a vacation on the calendar for your family to kind of focus their hope on. 
What are you looking forward to? What's your end? Somebody looking towards better health. Like, I'm just... Somebody looking towards financial stuff. Like, you actually have a good inheritance. I love my dad, but he runs a multi-hundred dollar corporation. Whatever he is giving me at the end of it all, I want no part of trying to figure out where all the change goes. But we're all looking ahead to something. All of us. That is not a uniquely Christian thing. What are you looking forward to? And Malachi ends the Old Testament this. Look forward. And it's interesting because it's kind of intermingled with look forward to all this wonderful stuff and look forward to this utter destruction that's coming. My kids just got this Play-Doh from Linda Hankins. Is she in the room? Thanks, Linda. And it's all over the house now. But it comes in different colored tubes. And you're supposed to like use the different color to create things. I have four boys and they're all knuckleheads and they just mix all of it together. Now it's just this big blob of just all sorts of... And when I read God talking about the coming day, it often feels a little like he's combining all this really sweet stuff with all this really scary stuff and it always seems to kind of be inseparable. And what this last chapter here is, God talking about all the really sweet stuff, the destruction that's coming, and what do we make of it? So I want to end here. I want to look at the sweet stuff. I want to look at the scary stuff. And then I want to ask the question, why does God, what's one reason maybe God always interlinks these? So that's what we're going to do. Chapter 4, we're going to go through, and we're looking ahead to that great and glorious day. I just want to give you the summary statement. Over, go to chapter 4, verse 5. This is what Malachi is unpacking. He's saying this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Great, wonderful Awesome, that's the same word of fear. Great and fearful day is coming. Well, as we look at this ball of lots of different colors, chapter 4, verse 1, let's look at the destruction and punishment first. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So whatever you're looking forward to, here's what I can promise you. If it's not this, what you're looking forward to may or may not happen. Health getting better, money coming in, kids showing up, healthy pregnancy, maybe. This will happen. Everything God has ever said has come true. 
And he still tells his people to look ahead because I have more stuff coming. And this will happen. The day is coming burning like an oven. So I just want to look at the language here. For all arrogant and evildoers. One day all the human math that we're trying to do and make sense of who's really deserving. And God will come down and he will do an audit and he will be spot on. And the arrogant evildoers, those who refuse to fear the Lord, he will surface. And what will happen? It will be burning like an oven. Seth talked a few weeks ago about fire for God's people, refining them. This is a, a heat in an oven. Why an oven? Because you can make it hotter. And what's this fire doing? It's burning it down so there's no, not even a root nor a branch. And then this really weird language of, you shall tread, talking about the righteous, you shall tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And that's the day that's coming, says the Lord. And he ends the Old Testament. Here's, here's God's point. Israel's first complaint is, it is pointless to serve God. You are not keeping track of things like you should be. And God says, I'm coming back one day and I will take care of this. Even the language there of the righteous stomping down on the ashes of the wicked is violent graphic language. And what I take of that is just God reminding his people that all the wrongs in this world will be undone. Everything will be made right. Everything that has happened that is unjust in your life will be taken care of in God's sight, in God's eyes. How? Because he will come and punish those who refuse to fear him in this world. This day is coming. With that day, simultaneously comes this day. Let's read. But for you, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Pause right there. God is bringing full restoration to this earth. All the sin of the brokenness that we see in Genesis gets started and now it's just exponential and everywhere will be fixed. We will be restored holy. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. What does this world need? It needs healing. And the sun of righteousness is coming one day to heal it completely and fully. What will that feel like? Next verse. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's what it'll feel like. What's the most joyful picture on this earth you could get? I don't know, but what Malachi chooses to use is a young calf leaping, full of joy in this world. We were just at McDonald's, and my little two-year-old, Ozzy, just runs around and says, Hud, 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 and he just hugs everyone. One day, God is coming back, and there will be hugs. Or leaping calves. Translation, all that's broken and dark and twisted and sad will be reversed. And we will have full healing and restoration. Verse 6, go down there. It says, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before this great and awesome day. Verse 6 says this. 
And ultimately, here's what's going to happen on that great day. He will turn. He, God, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It's such an interesting, like, zeroed-in picture for God to end on in the Old Testament. What am I doing in all these pages? What am I, what is God up to with all this work in this world? He is restoring children's hearts back to their fathers and fathers' hearts back to their children. He is restoring us at our core relationally. And some of you that means a lot because your relationships are busted. And for all who fear his name, he is restoring us relationally to where one day we will live in a perfect harmony with every person around us. That is beautiful. And that is not what is happening right now. And here's the other thing. He will be the one doing this. I love the show The Good Place. This is a, anybody Good Place fans, raise your hand. Oh, a few. So I'm going to slightly, so it's over now. The series finale came. And I'll just say this. I won't give away details. I was so disappointed. Good Place is about the afterlife. It's Kristen Bell, who's awesome. It's funny. It's great. It's my favorite writers. But it's all about the good place. It's all about afterlife. And I was so disappointed in how it ended. So I'm doing all this research. Why did the good place suck? Why was what? And there was all these philosophers who were part of the writing team. And I was reading their bios and then they did interviews. And they asked each philosopher, do you believe in the afterlife? No, because... Do you believe in the afterlife? No, because... Do you believe in the afterlife? No, because... So the people shaping this picture of the afterlife have no great day to look forward to. And then secondly, good place, you start to realize these people are getting bored in this good place. Because their version of heaven is, what do you like, dark beer? Yeah, all the dark beer you want. What do you love, nachos? What kind of nachos? Carnitas? Carnitas nachos, all you want. And the people in heaven are starting to realize, this is boring. And they're like, ah. And that's why I'll stop talking because I'll give it away. But the reason it's boring is they have no source at the center. They have no God at the center. They have human imagination and desires and wants just exponentially for all of time. But they don't have the source of good, right, beautiful at the center of their afterlife. So of course it's boring and of course people are going to want out of that. That is not what we get. We get God turning our hearts back to each other and our, turning our hearts back to him forever. That's what we're looking forward to, believers in Jesus. The book of Revelation ends about the same way. Describing this beauty and also describing this destruction. So as one of your pastors, I just thought through who's in this room and who needs to hear from the Lord. Some of you have an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Like it's a caricature version of God who you hear judgment and it's this loud in your mind and you hear all the great stuff and it's this loud in your mind. I just want to remind you, you are his treasured possession and you will leap like a calf one day and he is right here with you. Grab hold of that language. You are his treasured possession. He's coming back again for you. That's beautiful. Is the destruction stuff still true and right and happening? Yes. But maybe turn it down a little and listen to what God is saying to you. There's some of you that have a healthy fear of the Lord and you're doing what you need to do as a follower of Jesus. And you live in a world where if you were left to just look out and see what's going on, you would start to 
diminish that fear of the Lord. I just want to encourage you to keep meeting. Keep being together with the people of God. The book of Hebrews says this. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Because in so doing, the hardness of your heart will kick in. Keep doing this. Keep meeting. Keep reminding yourself of the goodness you have in Jesus. Of the grace you have in Jesus. The forgiveness you have in Jesus. That he is alive and active. And when you pray, he is paying attention and he is listening. Come together and remind yourselves of that. But this is, I just want to end with this. Because this is how Malachi ends. Some of you have no fear of God right now. The book of Malachi ends with a warning. I am coming back, not to Horeb, not to a single mountain this time. I am coming back to the land. And there will be utter destruction. Period. End of the book. God uses moments like this to turn your hearts towards fear where there was no fear before. Some of you need to fear God for the first time. Repent and turn to Jesus because he is coming back. And he is going to divide the righteous from the wicked. And he is going to restore all things for the righteous. And he will punish the wicked. He's always come through on his promise. And that's how Malachi ends. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the real way you relate to us. Even all these disputes in the book of Malachi are reminded of just real tensions we face. Even this one where we, if we're to just look out in this world, it seems so unfair, so wonky, so uh, uncared for by you at times. And yet you give us this book and you remind us and you point us to things to remember you by. And this book of Malachi is a good reminder that we are your people. We are your treasured possession. You have not forsaken us, not for a moment. And for those that fear your name, you are doing something. Even the song we're going to sing, this new wine, you are, even in the pain, you are doing something beautiful. God, for those in this room who have not bowed to you yet, I just pray this moment would sit heavy on them. That they would fear you and they would turn to you and that their joy would be abundant and that they would leap like calves because of the full forgiveness and restoration that you offer in the person of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time in the book of Malachi. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.